Welcome back to Word and Table, a weekly podcast on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship, and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilgus, and I am here as always with Father Stephen Gautier. Welcome back, Father Stephen. Great to be back, Alex. Father Stephen is the canon theologian of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest in the Anglican Church in North America, and he is Director of Formation at St. Paul's House of Formation in the Greenhouse Movement. Father Stephen, you know, we have Advent and Christmas coming up pretty soon, and so I I really wanted to bring up with you uh, the virginity of Mary, which is, of course, uh, uh, an incredibly important uh, claim of the Christian of the Christian gospel. Uh, it's in the creed, as we'll get into. Um, and uh, well, you know, so but the thing is that while while all Christians agree that Mary was a virgin when she had Jesus, there's a there's a bit of disagreement um, on on how long she she was a virgin, <laughs> um, okay. uh, especially between Protestants and other traditions. Um, so some some traditions. Uh, believe that she remained a virgin her entire life and others believed that she uh she she had other children after jesus but everybody agrees that she uh, was a virgin at the time that she had jesus so i wanted to get especially into this idea of the perpetual virginity of mary um and talk about what it might reveal about about our lord and his mother um, and, and the history there and, and some of the significance. So yeah, maybe you can just, you can, you can tell us a bit about this, about this doctrine of the perpetual virginity. Well, uh, boy, it's a very, uh, was a very important discussion in the early church, but something really interesting about the early church, and it went through different phases. There are three points about virginity. They talk about perpetual virginity. If you look at an Eastern icon, they have three stars. Mary always has three stars, one on her veil, on her forehead, and two on her shoulders. And that means she was a virgin before, after, and during. Okay, okay. <laughs> is the idea. That's what they mean. So let's talk about before, the obvious thing, you know, that Jesus doesn't have a human father. All the early discussion in the church about Mary was never about Mary. It's always about Jesus. Mary is only mentioned to the extent that something we say about her direct, directly affects how we understand Jesus. Mm -hmm. So what do the creeds say about Mary? It says that Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary. Not just of Mary, of the Virgin Mary. Okay, yeah, so, so that's in the creed. So that's a, that's a big deal that Mary be understood as a virgin. Um, that's right. Yeah, so the the idea that Mary was not a virgin, um, you know, maybe maybe the maybe the Bible just uh, got that one wrong, or maybe just decided to embellish a little bit. That's off limits for 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 Christians. Or it might uh, at first people might be tempted to think this is just like an extra miracle. You know, what difference would it make? But actually, it makes an important difference. The reason this is in the creeds. Because the creeds are what's the absolute minimum of, you know, the, the, the scope of the gospel. Is remember, Jesus has two natures. He's truly divine. He's truly the Son of God. But he's also truly human. Mary is his human mother. And so the virginity emphasizes that truly he is divine. He has no human father. Hmm. Otherwise, we could say, well, maybe it's one of those things he sort of adopted or God loved him a lot, yeah. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. 
And saying, no, no, it's truly, in the literal sense, he has no human father. God is, this is not poetic, it's not an allegory, an analogy, it's true. His father is God, and his mother is Mary. An important thing there, too, is actually look at the gospel. They don't use the normal way uh, of talking of being born of Mary, because they wanted to make it very clear that we might think like a surrogate mom. You know, a surrogate mom in modern medical technology means that the woman carrying the baby might have nothing to do with the baby. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. It could be somebody else entirely. But Mary is truly the mother of Jesus. I mean, his body comes from her flesh. I mean, he his flesh of her flesh. Okay. Yeah. So his humanity comes from Mary. So she's not just an incubator, as it were. <laughs> you know, that's very important because sometimes people have the word theotokos, which means Christ's bearer, which is certainly true. And we also have the expression mother of God. And it's important that each one has, a. you have to be careful. Mother of God means that since she carried Jesus and we can't separate his divinity and his humanity, that if she's she's mother of one, she's mother of the other, but Christ doesn't get his Godhead from her. Right. <laughs> his, he gets it from his father. From Mary, he gets his humanity. On the other hand, uh, Mary again, truly is his mother. So that's why we say mother of God. She's truly the mother. His physical being comes from Mary. Mm -hmm. So the importance of the virgin birth is shows us that this is not a metaphor, that truly Christ is in every sense the son of God and the son of Mary. Okay, so Mary's virginity is really about Jesus's divinity. It's all about Jesus's divinity. It's not talking about any... She is a tool of God. It's a beautiful thing. She let herself be that tool, but it's not talking about her honor. Even mm -hmm. the creed doesn't mention her directly. It says, he is born of the Virgin Mary. Yeah, yeah. As a fact, but the fact was so important. Also is one of the favorite Old Testament prophecies. Isaiah seven fourteen, a virgin shall bear a son. Right. Now we've talked about this, the actual word Alma uh, in Hebrew means a young woman typically who ought to be theoretically a virgin. <laughs> you know, uh -huh. she's not married yet, but things happen. <laughs> uh, versus Parthenos in Greek, which means physi physiologically a virgin. And the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, long before Christ, those who knew both languages understood Isaiah 7.14 to mean a virgin because they, they could have translated it differently in Greek. They used the word Parthenos. These were Jews long before Jesus, who translating their own scriptures used the word Parthenos. And of course, it's actually used in, um, in, in the New Testament, and Matthew uses the word. And of course, we're told about his virgin verse very explicitly. You know, so the, but that was another point, that this was a real proof text. And it was rebuttal to the Docetists. They wanted to emphasize that he didn't just appear to be human. So he really is the son of Mary, but he also is the son of God. You know, there's a neat point that we have uh, in the story where Jesus goes to the temple when he's 12. And remember what happens, Mary says, and they make a point of this. It shows also Jesus is aware of his special, you know, always knew about his special relationship to the Father. It's mm -hmm. not something that happened at his baptism. She said, you know, your father and I have been looking for you for three days. <laughs> a natural parental reaction. Yeah. And he says, I'm in my father's house. He's basically, that man's not my father. Uh -huh. Yeah, he doesn't say that, but he's basically saying, I'm in my father. What do you mean, your father and I? I'm in my father's house. Sure, sure, sure. 
So again, that's the real reason we have that episode is to tell us both of, you know, Jesus's awareness of the fact again of his special relationship that he is truly, not figuratively, a son of God. Many Old Testament kings were uh, metaphorically sons of God. You know, at your at your um, at your coronation, you know, when you were anointed with oil, you would be described, you know, as you know God taking you as a son. But no, he's really, in every sense, the son of God. Okay. Okay. Um. So that's so that's the idea of Mary's virginity being a uh, proof of of Jesus's divinity. Yes. So but so maybe maybe departing from the antepartum vir, virginity vir, virginity of Mary that that all Christians agree on. Um but where do we start hearing about Mary's virginity actually extending after Jesus's birth? Well, actually, we really start people getting into that in connection with the monastic movement. One of the things that was revolutionary in uh, Christianity is its emphasis on the goodness of the celibate life. Remember, this was uh, considered a violation of the very first of the commandments of the Torah by Jews. That's right. Be fruitful and multiply. It multiplies the first of the commandments of the Torah. <laughs> it's a duty to have a child of each sex. Uh, and, you know, in, According to the Talmud, it's a duty to have a child of each sex is the minimum. And so the monastic movement's emphasis on, on celibacy, the special devotion of ourselves to God, is a special way of showing devotion to God. It seemed to them uh, more in keeping with this. So that's where a lot of it seems to come from, uh, this high ideal of virginity. And it's actually mentioned in one of the proto-gospels. That these are these are apocryphal gospels. It says, well, what about these brothers we hear about with Jesus? And they argue that it was the first marriage of Joseph. I see. Because Joseph is clearly out of the picture early on because he's clearly dead by the time Jesus dies. Why do I say that? Clearly dead because there's no question who's going to take care of mom. <laughs> That's not a question that comes up when you have a husband. Right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you mean, know, so at, at which point are you saying who's going to take care of mom? Like at, at, at the crucifixion. At the crucifixion. Okay, I see. Yeah. Okay, yeah. When he, he... Uh, you know, when you have dad, that would be uh, so, and he, he's never mentioned again in all these episodes where Mary is mentioned. Of course, he did have a job, but uh, <laughs> but putting putting that aside, uh, you know, the, the idea was that that uh, this might it might have also well, there are other reasons to believe would be older, but maybe these were children from a previous marriage with Joseph became very prominent at this time. It comes from the proto, and that's the prime. That's the view of the Eastern Church, is that we'll come back more about those children maybe later. Uh, that, uh, but the view of the Eastern Church to this day is that the people described as brothers of Jesus in the New Testament are actually half you know are, are actually um not even half brothers physiologically you know their joseph is their father from that's the eastern view so th this is clearly kind of a widespread belief in the early church uh among uh, a number of, of of church fathers and people who are are you know involved in, the, in monastic movements etc but does anybody does anybody kind of sit down and argue or or make a point about why we ought to believe this, like from Scripture? Uh, Augustine does. Uh, St. Augustine uh, famously uh, argues that Mary must have vowed virginity uh, prior to the Annunciation. And here's his argument, which I personally agree with. Uh, his scriptural argument is... The quote from Luke one thirty four is, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? Now, remember our context here. Mary is engaged to get married. 
the angel says you will have a child. Now, married women, people are about to get married, unless they don't know where baby come from, saying, you know, gee, um, you know, how come, how can I ever have a baby? Is saying, well, you know, when you get married, those things happen. <laughs> and also, in, in the ancient world, I've got to tell you, it's impossible to be naive about sexuality in the ancient world. One of the reasons would be that uh, one of the things that allows sort of Victorianism, a real, real naivete about sexuality, is a lot of space. Separate bedrooms, these kind of things. Ha families typically lived in the same room, poor families and things. So we're talking mm -hmm. about waiting to the middle of the night and having a, having a blanket up. But unless a child were brain dead, they would quickly figure out, you know, looking at animals around them. Brothels were a part of the public, the ancient world, less so, in, not in, in Jewish areas, but, you know, certainly in any of the pagan cities. So people um, knew a lot more about sexuality. Yeah, yeah. So you're saying that, you know, so Gabriel shows up and essentially says, you're going to have an amazing baby. Yeah. And she says, how? <laughs> And so it's always imagining Gabriel being like, well, um, when a man and a woman love each other. Very yeah, yeah. Much, you know? <laughs> that was my talk where babies came no, from when I was thinking it used to be when a man loved each other. Right. There never any description of how this happened other than the way they loved the other real a lot. Sure, sure. So, so Augustine's point is that her saying, how will this be, only makes sense in the context of her understanding herself to actually never, well, she she's never going to have relations with Joseph but but what does that mean so how, why would she get married to Joseph but never have uh, fruitful relations well uh, one thing it could be is we live in a world we can't imagine the idea of, of marriage and romantic love to us uh, go together this is an extraordinarily modern notion <laughs> uh, you know ma basically marriage was about uh, about property it's about and women had to be married it was just a practical for they were in a desperate situation that's why we talk about widows at the time not having a not having a husband put you in a tremendously bad position so the idea that this could have been basically a marriage of, uh, of convenience especially if uh, this is what the eastern church would say that if joel just was an older man she has a vow of virginity he's willing to just enter into a marriage of convenience which will give her will take care of her needs she'll have someone to take care of her etc uh, seems believable in a way to us, given women had to be married, basically, or it would be very difficult. You had to have an older brother, you had to have somebody. Uh, that that could explain the, the, the marriage as she went in, saying, look, I just, um, uh, I've made this vow. But people used to think such vows would be impossible to think of, but you know, the Essenes taught us a lot about that. We used to think because of the first commandment, how could any Jew possibly? But then again, Jesus wasn't married, and people didn't find that a shock and call him rabbi. And we had these very pious group of people called the Essenes, who we know for a fact weren't married. So the idea clearly in Judaism, knowledge of the idea of, of dedicated virginity was, was a real idea in, in some of these places. John the Baptist wasn't married. <laughs> okay, okay. You know, Paul wasn't so married. So the category... Right, so the category exists yeah. for someone who's who's devoted to God instead of instead of to fruitful to fruitful marriage. Also, I got to okay. tell you another thing that could be very helpful too is what this would have said about uh, about Jesus. Is you know people would say in normal human terms, yes, this is a virgin birth, and she went on to have twenty kids, uh, and simply say, don't give me, but they just jumped the gun. 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're saying that this is less of a, it's a less convincing the very proof that Jesus is divine if Mary goes on to have more Right, kids. because how do we know <laughs> yeah. the, ob- the obvious thing you would suspect? This is why we have the story of Joseph. Why do they tell us Joseph worrying about this? Is that's meant to be a proof of Jesus's virgin birth. If the fiance knows that it can't be me, <laughs> that's a pretty high testimonial. Yeah, he's the yeah, obvious yeah. suspect. You would think would be you know, gee, a woman suddenly who's engaged gets pregnant. Gee, I wonder how that could happen. Yeah, and if everyone around him would know that it can't be him, then. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And then later on, the fact they never had subsequent children would say, wait a second, it's not a matter they're just saying, yeah, nothing happened before, but the fact that they never, ever had children would seem to be to further support. It's not necessary, but be a further additional support of the fact that truly there's something very special here. Sure, sure. Okay, so do we have any do we have any early like objectors to this idea? Or or maybe not objectors, but like someone who understood this differently? Tertullian. But what bothered Tertullian, he points out to the fact that Jesus is mentioned as having brothers and sisters in the New Testament. But his basic point wasn't about that. His basic point was that he was worried. You know, the two things we had wanted to emphasize, Jesus was truly human and he was truly divine. And some people might want to really underplay the human part. And so his worry is that, is this an attempt to say that all of this wasn't physical somehow? And so he thought that emphasizing, you know, Jesus of one in a family his basic point was this emphasizes, no, he was a real human being. I mean, really. I mean, he was human in every sense. It wasn't like he's this divine, Mary is again like an incubator, you know, that he really had a human mother who gave birth to him. And that seemed to reinforce, as opposed to Gnostics, the physical reality of Jesus, that he wasn't. uh, I see. So that seemed to be what motivated him. Yeah. So do we? Uh, so um, th- this this perpetual vir- vir- virginity of marriage of of Mary this this just this extends to her her physical virginity. Now they right? call in like, partu, not it, just before and after, but during, meaning that the physical evidence of virginity was not harmed by the birth. Oh, interesting. Okay, I see. I see. The, I see. In a world where this is really important, I mean, people. In many traditional sites to this day, is one of the things they expect when you come out of the wedding chamber is blood. Right. right. As proof that this is the real thing. And so the argument was that uh, Ambrose actually talks about this based on Ezekiel 44 too. The Lord said to me, this gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord, the God of Israel has entered by it. Therefore, it shall remain shut. That verse was beloved of the fathers. Their view is a sort of, it was a miracle and he did something physical to emphasize the reality of the miracle. And so Jerome took that okay. position, but he had opposition. Helvidius didn't agree on that. Okay. So that, so the, the, that the, the physical, um, that Mary's physical body is, doesn't end up like, like other women's physical bodies after birth is what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I see. I see. So, but th- does this get does does this element of her her perpetual virginity 
gain kind of wide acceptance? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's presumed when you look at the arguments around the Council of Ephesus, both sides to the arguments uh, about Mother of God, you know, presume this. And when we have in the Council of Chalcedon, you know, the, the fourth of the ecumenical councils, the second one that we have in the, um, in the fifth century, uh, they actually, in the, in the Tome de Flavian, which is really where its main decree is, which is written by Leo of Rome, that it describes her as ever virgin, you know, so uh, which uh, implied that. So, I mean, it was really adopted um, there, although later it'll come back to it as Second Constantinople, Second Nicaea, and, say, and just say it outright as a declaration. But in the first four okay. ecumenical councils, the third, the discussions presume it. No one argues against it. They just take it as a given. And in Chalcedon, she is described with this taken as a given in a document approved by the whole council. Okay, so this this is pretty much just accepted Christian belief until until when? Well, it's going to be, the, even the title, it's going to be until the uh, Reformation. And it's not going to be people like Calvin and Luther argued for it, especially Luther was very accurate, arguing for the perpetual virginity of Mary. It was really um, more on the Anabaptist side where you had people saying, let's just start everything fresh and saying, and sort of liking to say, here's the church has been wrong and there's great honor done to Mary. And saying, well, look, you know, she's just like anyone else. And some people also were beginning to think that maybe this downplayed the, um, one of the things we talked about in the Reformation was how all Christians had a vocation, like the church. Mm-hmm. And the idea that somehow people who de- dedicated in the celibacy were a special holy class. And so they liked the idea that sort of was this somehow taking away from motherhood and normal marriage. That the idea of a, okay. of a married couple would be neither one of them were intimate. So the connections of the doctrine of perpetual virginity to monastic movements start to start to kind of work against the doctrine. Like people are not so high on it by the time of the Reformation. Well, as well, they we were in the early church. In this country and things, that kind of movement is very important. You know, bap, you know, Anabaptism has played a very critical role in North America, but not in Europe. Mm-hmm. I mean, there in Europe, we're talking about Luther and Calvin. No. Uh, yeah, so they, so both Luther and Calvin um, thought that Mary was perpetually uh, a virgin. It was the belief of the entire church, you know, without question from the, from early times. It was approved as, Mary had the type of, Parthenos, you know, the ever virgin, was actually approved at Second Constantinople, and approved again at Second Nicaea. So in the sixth, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, so again, there it was the universal belief of the church until no one questioned that because it largely told us about Jesus. It was emphasizing the fact of who he was. Sure. So tell me about that. You brought up uh, the thing that. Uh, you, you brought up the Tertullian's objection and also um, and also the uh, the the earlier on the brothers of of Jesus no. that tends to be the story cited uh, by people who don't believe in Mary's perpetual virginity that look uh, w- what does scripture mean when it says the brothers of Jesus if not you know fraternal, fraternal relatives that's a very good argument and so let me talk very seriously what the problems why other people at the time again since this is a universal belief you know they could read as well what what made them feel differently and mm-hmm. one thing that we have in english for example that you don't have in many other languages is we have a unique word to describe someone as having a blood connection with us without saying what the, any giving any comparison to an actual blood relationship we have the word relative now, let's take a language like French. That's not an exotic language, right? 
But, you know, in French, the word for your mom and dad, they're called parents. You know, it looks like the English word parents, spelled exactly the same way. But in French, if you want to say that, you know, I have some relatives up, you know, somewhere, you know, I have some relatives over there, and, you know, you'd say, you have parents. It's also the generic term for relative. There is no other term. Oh, okay, I see. You know, I've talked about having my parents, I lost them long ago, sadly, you know, um, 80, back in 85 and 90. So that's many, many years mm-hmm. ago, I, I sadly lost my own parents of blessed memory. But I still talk about having relatives. When I describe them, I use the term parent because there is no other way to describe when I talk about not them, rather, about my cousins, you know, aunts, uncles. They're les yeah, yeah. They're, they're the relatives. And in Hebrew... So you just don't have a separate word in Hebrew for for brother or relative. Well, it's just one it's word. It's true, like the word parent or the word parent. It primarily means all things being equal, your parents, but it's also the term that's used generically to describe relatives. Well, in Hebrew and Aramaic, the generic term for relative is brother. That's the generic mm-hmm. term for a relative. It also means your physical brother, no question. But I can give you proof, easily proof, and look at the Old Testament. Remember, we certainly know who Abraham is, and we know who Lot is. Lot is Abraham's nephew, right? By his, we, mm-hmm. There's no question. He's That's described right. that way. Well, when Abraham and Lot go down to, you know, they're in the, the promised land, and they have the crop there, rather their flocks are so big that there's some, the herdsmen are starting to get into fights. You know, Abraham says, it's not right, you know, that we should, you know, start having quarrels like this. You know, we're brothers. That's yeah. actually the word he uses. Now, they weren't okay. brothers. Why do you say it? Because it's the only way you can say it in Hebrew. You know, we're, we're relatives. <laughs> He's not saying, you know, you're not, here's a secret. You didn't know this, but you're actually my brother. You're not my nephew. No. And so <laughs> the point is that uh, that certainly doesn't prove they're not their brothers. But it proves that there's an equal explanation. We simply know they're relatives, and they certainly could be his brothers. But what else would lead us to think that's not the case? And the first is, at the cross is if he has all these brothers, you know, that are literally his brothers, then how come we're worrying about what to do with mom? You know, again, he oh, yeah. says, you know, you know, son, you know, you know, here's your mother. Mother, here's your son. Is Jesus is doing what any good son would do, you know, is taking care of mom. Uh, you know, th- you know, taking care of who's going to take care of her now because that also makes us think that Joseph is probably gone because the oldest son, you know, would be, you know, the firstborn would be, you know, the one in charge. So we have that. Another thing is the names, Jesus is the names were given for his brothers are exactly the same as the children of the other Mary, mm-hmm. who's described as a relative of Mary. So she yeah, has a relative, yeah. and guess what? Her children have the same names, James and Joseph, if you look at Matthew's gospel at the foot of the cross, the other Mary, the mother of. Oh, so, right, you know, yeah. two of those have exactly, the first two have the same, same names. And also, sometimes people say, and they're right to ask these questions, well, he's described as the firstborn. Well, the first form is a juridical term. It simply means the firstborn, even if you never have any other children, is your firstborn because it means they have the right to the estate. And it says, for example, in Jewish law, that the firstborn male has to be redeemed. There's a special commandment that says the firstborn male, remembering from the, the exodus in Israel, of Israel in Egypt, that the firstborn will say, they all belong to me. And so the firstborn, you have to pay back of a redemption of the firstborn. And so, believe me, if you're a Jew, you don't wait to see if other children see if you're firstborn. <laughs> as soon as you have a son, he is the firstborn, and therefore he's subject to. Firstborn does not imply more children. Actually, in the in the uh, acts in the book of the Revelation, 
It talks about the assembly of, in, in heaven as being an assembly of the firstborn. Well, how many firstborn can you have? Well, it means they're all heirs. I see, I see. Okay. So, and then another, go ahead, please. Yeah, so there, there's one other thing um, where the in in scripture I can't remember the verse, but it says that uh, after that Mary does not have relations with Joseph until. until Jesus is born. So it sounds like until it sounds like okay, then afterward they did right. Like I would say, I don't, I'm, I you know, I didn't eat uh, until I got to the restaurant or something. You know, then then I did right. Um, what about that? Well, one? that's a that's a good one, but that's a trouble with what we call semantic field in in linguistics. Is the word in the word until in English is a much narrower term. The Greek term, which is used and which is used to translate the Old Testament, for example, uh, with the, with the Greek edition, is for example, let's use Second Samuel six twenty three. Remember, Saul had a daughter Michael that uh, David got her as his wife, and mm-hmm. she and David did not get along. <laughs> right. And it says, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child until the day of her death. Are we supposing she had a child after she was dead? <laughs> I, I guess not. I mean, that would be quite a miracle. But You uh, know, to say, he say some vegetarian, he never ate meat till the day he died. Doesn't mean that he starts eating meat <laughs> after his death. And so, but it's much more common in Greek this way. The word until, the Greek term for this. Uh, just doesn't have that limiting meaning. It means the entire time frame. It does not mean there's a change afterwards. It's simply I can tell you for the you know the, I or like someone saying you know let's say some someone's running for office wondering if they did drugs in college. I could say uh, yeah until they finished. I can tell you all the way until they finished college because I was with them in college that they never did drugs. Well, that doesn't mean they started okay. doing drugs once they got out of school. Right, right, right. So that's just a that's a linguistic misunderstanding. It's uh, again in the Bible we can show other instances where until clearly doesn't imply there's a change. I see. I see. He's trying to say all okay. the way up. There's no question about they miscounted the months. You know that there nothing happened. There was no nothing between yeah. these people all the way up until the, you know that that point. That's the point we're making that Jesus. There's no possibility Jesus in any way is connected with a human male. Okay, I see. Well, so I mean, the it seems to me that that out of all of these, the the Annunciation, Augustine's point about the Annunciation is is the most is the most convincing like why is it that mary could not imagine having a child at that point um so it 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 seems to suggest that she she was really not expecting to at all and that puts a really interesting spin on the story you know i didn't really grow up um i didn't grow up believing this i wasn't you know forced not to believe this but it just wasn't the picture um and and i gotta say you know uh seeing the picture this way, it does put a really, uh, I think, really beautiful uh, light, shed a lot of beautiful light on the story. And I think on both Mary and Joseph. So the the idea that, you know, God blesses the poor and the, the, the ones that don't have any inheritance in this life. And that, that out of, out of that apparent barrenness comes fruit. Um, so the idea that Mary didn't think that she was going to have any heir at all, um, and and that those fortunes are completely reversed by the favor of God uh, is a it, it's it seems very characteristic of what what God of of, of how God saves, um, and I think the other thing for me also is Joseph how you know it, it seems like he wasn't really expecting to uh, have such a 
such an interesting um, first year of marriage <laughs> to, to marry. Like being an older man, uh, you know, the scripture says he's a just man. Um, but, but being an older man, he uh, and advanced in years, the fact that he you know, flees with her to Egypt and goes on a donkey with, with uh, all, all everything that he does for her almost it, it takes on more significance and more weight uh it under the if if we we assume that you know he's well he's in his twilight years here also got to say it it says a lot about the guy i think it's you know one of the reasons to be a jew you have to be the son of, the child of a jewish mother being a father the father doesn't count why because the only one we can ever really know for sure <laughs> is the mother uh-huh we don't know. We don't know who the father is ultimately in a pre-DNA world. And so the Jewish is always goes to the, it's matrilineal. You know, it, even though the father is not as far as inheritance, you're your father's son. But to be a Jew, you have to be born of a Jewish mother. Because that's, that's okay. the proof positive, is born of, you're born yeah. of a Jewish mother. And uh, so Joseph really had a lot of faith here. Mary knew for a fact this was yeah, true. Joseph yeah. couldn't know for a fact. Sure, sure. I sure. mean, he has the angel yeah, no, telling that's... him, but it's different from Mary knowing. Honestly, you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's it it seems to recommend Joseph as well. So, so what's the so this is this is obviously the widespread belief of the early church. It's still the it's still the the belief of the Eastern Church and the Roman Catholic Church. But what's our Anglican position on this? Um, how, what what does it take to to be an Anglican vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the virgin birth? Well, the only thing required by the creeds and by the 39 articles of religion, you know, based on the scripture, is that we have to believe that Jesus is no father but God. You know, that is, you know, that's it, that Mary is a virgin in the sense that Jesus in no way is the result of human intimacy. That he, his, mm -hmm. his, only, his mother is, Mary is truly his mother. That's all that's required. So basically... You know, someone could believe Jesus had brothers and sisters. That wouldn't violate uh, Anglican position. Um, it's expressly adopted in two Christological def uh, definitions here, but uh, in Second Constantinople, Second Nicaea. But it's uh, you. But again, we only adopt the first. Uh, you know, four, four councils as such, and people could argue about the Christology here. Uh, you know, because it's not talking about the nature of Christ and those. So I would say for sure. an Anglican, and a good Anglican wouldn't have to, but my view is I don't see why we wouldn't in the sense it's the universal belief of the church from early times. It was a belief of the great reformers. Um, and it also, it's all not about Mary, it's about Jesus. It's talking about the situation he came, um, uh, the, you know, of who he is fully, fully God and, and fully man. One thing that's interesting is, you know, and, uh, this is going to seem odd to you, is when you look at uh, perhaps, as, or I should say to our hearers, is, you know, in the Western church, we always show uh, the resurrection as being Christ in front of this the rolled back stone. Now, actually, if you look carefully at the Gospels, uh, the stone hadn't to be, had to be rolled back because Christ can go through. The risen Christ is not bound, but he walks into the locked room and things. So their yeah. point is the stone was only rolled back so the women could get in to see, not vice uh -huh. versa. So they also argued that one of the reasons they prefer, they have the harrowing of hell for Easter, is they also thought that was symbolic of the fact that Christ rose and kept out of the grave yet didn't move the stone, was also like the virgin birth. This is a sign of the virgin birth as well. Sort of a, a I see, I see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Miraculously, yeah. Oh, he passes through and yet leaves no trace. 
<laughs> okay. Okay. So the, this the so and this is this has been overwhelmingly believed by by Anglicans oh, yeah. as, as well. Like if you just want to look at most Anglicans that have ever been the the perpetual virginity is the the kind of the default position there. Yeah, there was no reason. Um, one thing for me, just as is one man's view too, is looking at our uh, similar situation. Let's say for uh, for Islam, you know, from the seventh century and like, if people are really brothers of Jesus in the sense of actually his physical brothers, we'd expect these people to be pretty prominent and known. This would be something you'd be bragging about, etc. And we'd, we have people, we have like the Sultan of, of Morocco is related to the prophet. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> we would expect that. That's never happens in the New Testament. Even though we know these brothers come yeah. to the faith, they're never important people. What about uh, James, brother of the Lord? The only reason we mention that, because we don't say it about Jude, uh, you know, actually it's more important he's brother of James, is that... <laughs> is that there's so many Jameses around, we have to find a way to distinguish him from, you know, uh, James, you know, son of Zebedee and James, the uh, son of Alpheus. So it's like, which yeah, James yeah. out of the many, you know? So um, it was like, to me, yeah, if we were actually talking about the actual siblings of Jesus that we would have expect based on what we see elsewhere in religious movements, we would have expected a whole bunch of people proudly talking that they come directly, you know, they're collaterally descended from the same line. Yeah, and it seems like it would that would be a that, that would be a really plumb target for uh gnostic writers as well, right? Like cuz everyone was interested in, oh, this is the secret stuff that Jesus said to people that were close to him, um but we don't really have any like secret gospels of Jesus's fraternal siblings. No, I mean like it's that. universally taken. So in a world where everyone would have known these people, it seems to me what could explain why do people see so um find this so inconsequential is the fact that they really have a tenuous relationship to Jesus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. You know, hearing someone like the president has a brother is different than hearing he has a cousin. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're right, you're right. It's just, just good. It's just not the same thing. You know, people really went, whoa. Right. The other, they think, wow, cousins are, you know, some could be close, some not, but yeah. it doesn't really tell you much. Right. Well, anything else you have for us on the perpetual virginity of Mary, Father Stephen? Again, as I, I think the best way is Anglicans to look at it. I love, there's one of the images we have of Mary. It's called the Hodegetria. She's the one who points the way. You see her with her hand out pointing to Jesus. And so we honor Mary, but it's always about looking towards Jesus. You know, the critical thing in all these things, it's not about, it's not about her as such, it's about Jesus. What does this tell us about uh, about the uh, position of Jesus and the fact emphasizing his true true manhood and his true godhood? Well, thanks so much, Father Stephen, and thank you for listening to Word and Table. We'll be back again next week for more on liturgy, sacraments, and the great tradition of Christian worship. Thanks for listening.